0: Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. Cerebral edema is the most common cause of death among children with diabetes mellitus, occurring as a complication of diabetic ketoacidosis in about 1% of children with type 1 diabetes. Among our young patients, who's at risk for a cerebral edema, and how can we prevent, recognize, and treat this complication of diabetic ketoacidosis? You're listening to ReachMD.com, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Muir, professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric endocrinology at Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Muir.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, just to set a baseline for everyone, how common is type 1 diabetes in children?
1: Well, type 1 diabetes occurs in about two to three children in every thousand, if you're looking at kids under 18 years of age.
0: And of those, how many would you say have diabetic ketoacidosis?
1: About a quarter of the kids who are first diagnosed with diabetes will have ketoacidosis. And then most of the kids at that point, once they start a treatment, will not have the complication again because they'll be receiving their insulin on a fairly reliable basis. There are a small number of children, depending on the practice, maybe anywhere from 5 to 10 or 15 percent who, for one reason or another, may have trouble reliably getting their insulin. Occasionally, there will be children who don't get their insulin because of a insulin pump failure or perhaps a, a move to another home environment for a holiday where the adult supervision might not be as typical as usual, and they end up not getting as much insulin as they normally need. So the bottom line is when you have ketoacidosis, you usually don't have enough insulin in the child, and that will happen rarely, but in that group that uh, have difficulties getting treatment, it may happen two or three times a year and even higher in in a small number of cases.
0: So for the children who do have the ketoacidosis, what is the risk for getting cerebral edema along with that?
1: The the risk really depends on how you define cerebral edema. In the traditional definition, children will have a really overt presentation with profound symptoms and coma, etc. Those kids are probably somewhere between 05 and 1% of all cases of ketoacidosis. If you extend the definition to more subtle neurological disturbances, you might be up to something like 4% or 5% of cases of cerebral edema.
0: And what is the pathophysiology behind the condition?
1: The pathophysiology is probably one of the, the greatest mysteries in diabetes care that comes into the clinical forum because the implications of the problem are so severe when it isn't recognized. There are a number of schools of thought. None of them have definitive evidence to prove one way or the other that they are the cause. When the condition was first recognized and people started to examine risk factors, the initial thoughts were that fluid therapy for diabetic ketoacidosis was actually causing the problem. People would blame rapid infusion of high volumes of hypotonic fluid as a setup for shifting fluid from the circulation intracellularly into not only brain cells but other cells, but the brain is where the symptoms would show up because the closed cranial vault doesn't allow expansion of tissue. That has been, for a long time, the major thought and the major driving force behind the idea that we have to treat children with ketoacidosis very carefully, with slow infusion rates, in order to avoid that setup. As time has gone on, that theory has been called into question And people are starting to wonder now if there are primary defects in possible mechanisms like hyperperfusion or perhaps a a change in the metabolism of the brain when it switches from an insulin-independent to an insulin-dependent environment that may result in primary neurologic dysfunction that cerebral edema shows up as a secondary effect of that problem.
0: Does the cerebral edema tend to occur early or late in the ketoacidosis event?
1: It's actually interesting that there is probably a bimodal distribution. On average, it's nine hours after the start of treatment that you will have an onset of symptoms that are clear clear signs of the child deteriorating. But if you look at that more closely, There's a a first wave around three hours after starting treatment and a second wave closer to 14 hours after treatment. It's very rare for cerebral edema to show up 24 hours or more after the onset of treatment. There's a, a very small number of people that show up even before treatment has started with symptoms of cerebral edema and they actually have that demonstrated on CT scans. So there is certainly a wide array and it is not a homogeneous picture. Interestingly, the people with the earlier onset, the three-hour onset, tend to be older than the children who present with a a 14-hour onset. So, again, it suggests something different in the pathogenesis.
0: Regardless of the time of the pathogenesis, what is the natural course or progression of the cerebral edema? Is it something that's pretty insidious and slow, or do kids deteriorate pretty quickly?
1: If one looks in the textbooks at the traditional description of cerebral edema, they'll describe a very rapid deterioration so that a child may be complaining of a mild headache, and then 15 minutes later they're in profound coma. As we looked through a number of cases, we found that that was probably not the typical scenario, although it certainly could happen. That rapid onset and demise is the thing that worries people the most because it's the hardest to catch and do something about. But in fact, when we looked carefully at a number of cases, we found that about three hours before the point where a child actually has a profound disturbance, there are early signs of increasing the cranial pressure, much like you might see in a neurosurgical intensive care unit. So they have slowing of the heart rate, they may have headache, they may have a change in blood pressure, urinary incontinence, altered level of consciousness, those kind of, of symptoms can be there for quite a while, but sometimes not. the importance of them is not recognized until they go into the very rapid declining phase of the condition.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Muir, Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology at Emory University School of Medicine. We're discussing cerebral edema in children with diabetes. We're talking a little bit about detecting some of the early signs of cerebral edema, slowing of the heart rate, urinary incontinence. What about doing a, a CT scan of the head to, to look for uh, abnormalities? A CT
1: scan is an important part of the evaluation for a child in diabetic ketoacidosis who's having a neurologic deterioration, but it's not the immediate step that you run to first main reason for that is because the concern that cerebral edema can deteriorate so rapidly. And when one balances the risk of that deterioration with the risk of, of taking them down to get a CT scan done, the favorite course is to treat with an agent such as hypertonic saline or mannitol, uh, try to relieve the pressure or the uh, volume increase first, and then do a CT scan, not necessarily to confirm that there's cerebral edema, rather to look and make sure it isn't some other problem like a hemorrhage or infarction.
0: Are there certain risk factors that can alert clinicians to the fact that a child may be at risk for cerebral edema, such as maybe their age or how recently they were diagnosed with the diabetes?
1: Right. The age is is very important. Children under five seem to be at a higher risk of having cerebral edema, And it's actually interesting that this condition is really not described in adults, at least to the point where patients get symptomatic of cerebral edema. All patients with diabetic ketoacidosis have some cerebral edema that can be demonstrated with CT scan. Interestingly, it often isn't recognized as abnormal at the time the initial scan is done, but in studies where convalescent studies where CT scans were done two weeks later, It was clear at that point in retrospect that there had been some subtle brain swelling in virtually every patient with ketoacidosis, irrespective of their age. But the adults don't seem to progress on to symptoms. Children do, and the very youngest children are the ones at the highest risk of progressing to symptoms. The question then is, is it because we don't recognize the symptoms as early in younger children, or is it that they're truly more prone to the condition?
0: Are there certain laboratory findings that tend to predict cerebral edema more so than, than not?
1: At the time of presentation, a uh, high blood urea nitrogen and a low partial pressure of CO2 have been found to be predictive, meaning that those those children who progress to s- symptomatic cere- cerebral edema are more likely to have those changes. Still, the majority of patients with high BUNs and high PCO2s at the time of presentation do not go on to have the condition. So they're not very helpful in a clinical sense. When somebody presents with symptoms, however, you may look at that to decide whether you actually want to intervene or continue observing.
0: So let's say a primary care physician diagnoses a child with new-onset hyperglycemia how much stabilization needs to be done in the office if the patient otherwise seems fine before they refer to an endocrinologist or an emergency department, for example?
1: Well, the first question that needs to be asked, obviously, is how is the child circulating fluid volume? Usually, they're breathing fine, so that's not much of a concern, but you want to determine have they got good perfusion, what's their blood pressure and their heart rate, and if those are at all Abnormally, you're obviously going to send that child promptly to emergency room or start resuscitation with fluid and in your office and then move the child on. What becomes more difficult is the child who appears healthy, presents with symptoms of diabetes and you detect hyperglycemia, child looks fine now, you have really no way of predicting what's going to happen to that child in the next 24 to 48 hours. So my feeling is that that child should be put in an environment where they can safely start a be started on insulin, whether that be in the hospital or an outpatient setting. It can be with a physician who is not a specialist if they feel comfortable dealing with new initiation of insulin treatment, or it can be done with a specialist. It obviously depends on the resources and the clinical practice that a physician chooses to run. But the key feature for me is that if you feel a child has type 1 diabetes, that child should get insulin within a, a short time and they need to be in an environment where that can be handled.
0: You also mentioned some fluid resuscitation. Does the the rate at which you resuscitate with fluid bolus affect the child's chance of getting cerebral edema?
1: Well, that, that is the crux of the controversy. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. We don't know if the fluid infusion rate makes things worse or not, but since it is more prudent, to err on the side of giving less fluid that's what we tend to do so we usually will some some physicians actually never give a fluid bolus unless the child is in shock others will give a bolus of isotonic fluid at 10 cc's per kilo over an hour and reevaluate and some others will say well i'm not going to go over 20 cc's per kilo per for an hour but usually after 20 cc's per kilo people have to stop and reevaluate and have a very good reason to give more resuscitative fluid in a hurry. Usually one bolus of 10 cc per kilo is adequate, at which point we start a more slow rehydration process.
0: And with that, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Andrew Muir. We've been discussing cerebral edema in children with diabetes. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD.com, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website, ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.